Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for um, your work on our behalf. We thank you for your cross and for um, your rising from the dead. And so, Lord, even as we study about sin and grace, would you make known to us your great love for us? Um, And would you um, help us, not just as individuals, but as your church, help us to um, walk that road, that road of um, humbling ourselves and then being lifted up by you, of um, recognizing our own need for you and then receiving mightily from um, the stores of your grace and mercy. So we thank you and praise you for who you are and all it is that you've done for us. And so open our minds and our hearts now as we look at it once again. Um, in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So my topic, I don't get to choose my topic. My topic is sin and grace, but um, if I had to choose my topic, this would be a great starting point. Um, And one of the reasons why we have a whole class on sin and grace is so you can understand who we are as a church and why we preach the way we preach. And you might notice, you might feel like um, the preaching is maybe a little different here than somewhere else. And part of that is because every single member of the clergy team has this mindset and it was a mindset that was um, given to us by the former dean Frank Limehouse I mean it's all throughout history this is a mindset of preaching the gospel and specifically the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that's available and needed for every single human being um, and that that forgiveness of sins is brought to us through the cross um, and then made manifest in our lives that grace is made manifest um, Um, through that continual confession of our sins again and again, week after week. So one of the things that um, former Dean Limehouse said was that if, um, if Jesus didn't have to die for this sermon to be preached, then why are you preaching it? Basically, if we don't return to the bedrock of our faith, to the foundation and that starting point of our faith, every time we preach from the pulpit, then why? And part of that idea is this um, Lutheran idea that goes back to Martin Luther that grace is something that we receive at the beginning of our walk of faith, every day throughout our walk of faith, and then all um, it's awaiting for us throughout all eternity. That grace is something not just for those who don't call themselves Christians yet. You think of an evangelistic sermon, and in my seminary we had um, we had a preaching class, and we had to each preach a sermon or two or three, I can't remember. But then we had a different category, and they said, now preach an evangelistic sermon. And I thought, oh, isn't that just a sermon? And that's kind of how we see it here, is that all of our sermons are evangelistic, that because we are um, re-evangelizing our hearts every time we come to church, we need to hear the good news again because we forget it. Um, We forget it during the week. We forget it as soon as we walk out the door sometimes, unfortunately. And so we're listening again to that old, old story of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. So with that as a preface, what then is sin? Let's start with our terms. What would we say that sin is? Um, We might not use this recording. If you actually speak up and you don't want us to use this recording, if you had to define sin, what would you say that sin is? And you're new, but you don't have to say anything. Yeah. Yeah. Rebellion against God. Thank you, Kristen. That's great. Any other ideas or things you want to throw out there? Violation of the Ten Commandments. Violation of the Ten Commandments. Absolutely. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Things you want to say? Okay. Sin is disobedience against the will of God 
And we see this in scripture in particular against his holy law. God commands it. Um, then we know our rebellion because in our hearts, when we hear the law as fallen human beings, we say, oh, I'd rather not. Thank you very much. <laughs> or I'm going to do it my way. I think I know better than the Lord God and creator of the universe. I'm going to go ahead and do this my way. Um, so breaking one part of the law means, though, that you've broken all of it. Um, every once in a while in church on Sunday morning, we'll read aloud in, the, in this order of service. We'll read aloud the Ten Commandments. And every time we do that, um, it's so powerful because um, I, I am, it puts me on my knees. It puts me um, to my knees because I realize um, that I haven't kept them, especially because I haven't kept them in the way that Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he internalizes them on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. So we might think, well, I haven't committed murder. But then in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you have been angry against your brother, then you've committed murder in your heart. And so God is not just concerned with our outward actions and the way that our internal thoughts and our intentions and motivations manifest themselves outwardly, but he also wants to cleanse us. He wants us to be righteous from the inside out. And so when we're honest with ourselves, we realize um, I haven't kept it in that inward place. So sin can be expressed through deeds, but also through words. And that's actually one of the hardest things for me is I'll say something that then I realize five seconds later is a lie. Or I'll say something that is maybe gossiping and I'll five seconds later I'll realize it and want to pull it back. Um, we have these new microphones in the church and the new microphones um, have this pernicious, diabolical um, thing where they will activate, their voice activated. And so if they're plugged in, if they're the wired ones and they're plugged in, then you can hear them from elsewhere in the church. You can hear them all in the nave. They're also piped into the garden. They're piped into this room. Sometimes if you heard a little sound, if you hear a little sound in here, that's what it is. They're piped into... Um, also into other parts, sometimes into the into the Klingman Commons out here. And so what we've discovered is we have to be really careful. <laughs> Just this morning, uh, Candace, Molly, and I were in the vesting room, and we were talking. Thankfully, upon reflection, there was nothing really awful that we said, but one of the microphones was on, and the battery had died, so we were, we were saved by the bell. But very nearly our entire conversation could have been piped into the nave um, to all of those who were quietly praying, waiting for worship. So there's that. Um, our sin can be expressed through our deeds, through our words, and especially in our thoughts and our attitudes. And recently, um, in the last several months, I was kneeling at, at the table um, up in worship on a Sunday morning and saying um, the prayer of confession and I was kneeling. I don't know why we were up by the table, because normally we're not all the way up there by that time. But as I was kneeling there, I realized that I was repenting. I was very consciously confessing something very specific. And I was repenting of something wrong that I'd clearly done. It was so black and white to me, so clearly um, sin. And as I was speaking, thinking it in my head, as I was praying the words of the liturgical confession out loud, I realized that it was a grace to be aware, so aware in that moment of my sin, because every week I'm guilty of pride, I'm guilty of sinful thoughts, I'm guilty of self-righteousness, and I'm just not as aware of it. And something so blatantly sinful, so clearly an outward action that could could not be um, 
excused in any way, um, really put me, put me even more on my knees and ma- said, made me say, Lord, let me be aware every Sunday of my sin in this way. Um, and so we're going to talk about why, of, why all of this. Is this just darkness or negativity, negativity? And it's not. It's so much more. Um, repentance from sin is so much more than low self-esteem. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But first of all, sin also, one other aspect of sin that is really highlighted and underlined by um, the famous Reformation theologian Martin Luther, is, that is this idea of sin being so tied in with unbelief. And for me, this is also personally another area where sin just gets in the way. And I talked about this last Sunday a little bit in my sermon, where um, I'll go through my life and I'll realize that I'm in a panic about something. I'm anxious about something or afraid that something is going to happen um, that I can't prevent from happening. And um, in that moment of anxiety, I'm essentially disbelieving that God is good, that he is in charge of the circumstances, so I don't need to control them. And that whatever uncomfortable thing or painful thing or thing that's not going to my liking that's happening right now and is beyond, it's actually, it's beyond my ability to control it. But in the moment, I forget and I think, do you really know what you're doing? And that right there, how's that for a rebellion, as you said, Kristen, against the Lord? That unbelief, that's a form of disbelief, a lack of faith, of saying um, you aren't really who you say you are or I'm not going to believe it in my heart and live it out in my actions. So I would add that to the list for sin. So you might think one thing too, one way of looking at sin is to look at sin in terms of actions, specific injunctions against the law of God. Even if it's the Ten Commandments and we're eternalizing it, we'll say, well, I thought that that one time. Now I'm going to pray the prayer of confession and then it's gone. And it is gone in God's terms. Um, but we sin again. And so this idea of sin is not just these specific actions or words or thoughts, but sin is like this condition. It is a condition, but I like to say that original sin um, in its, um, I, I like to liken it to a genetic mutation in our spiritual DNA. We think of that scientific idea. Sin is like a genetic mutation in our spiritual DNA. Um, and we look at that, look at scripture and we see that truth. They're present in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve um, chose to rebel against the one command that God gave them. Well, first of all, though, he gave them the freedom to be able to rebel. He gave them that ability to choose from the beginning um, because he doesn't just want these, autonom- uh, these um, automatons. He doesn't want robots worshiping him as do any of us in relationships. You don't want the people that you're in relationship with to be forced to love you, right? You want people who voluntarily want to love you, who choose to be with you. And so God, in creating Adam and Eve, did not want to have these automatons, these robot human beings that would have to obey everything he said, that would have to worship him as Lord and God, that would have to do um, all that he told them to do. He wanted, he wants voluntary worshipers. And so he created human beings with the ability um, to disobey, with that option, um, within the menu of options. Um, and his command to them was to not eat the fruit of that one tree. And, of course, they disobeyed. And so in that theological um, uh, discussion about our origins as a human race, we find out this information about us, about this genetic mutation. Adam's sin was catastrophic for all human beings. And St. Paul says in Romans 5.8 that one trespass led to the condemnation 
of all. Um, in our Articles of Faith, and if you've been here for a little while, you'll know about the prayer book, right? Which is what we use on Sunday morning as we say our prayers out loud. In the back of the prayer book, um, there are these historical documents. And just for, for just for the sake of ease, thank you very much, they put them in teeny tiny print. So if you get out your magnifying glass, you can look at the Articles of, of Religion. And those are the confessional um, theological tenets of the Anglican faith. Those were um, set up just after the English Reformation as a part of reforming the Roman Church in England. And so if you look at those articles, you'll find out what do we believe? What do Anglicans believe? What do Episcopalians believe? Um, and so this article, Article 9, says um, about original sin, the fault and the corruption of the nature of every man is original sin, whereby every man is far gone from original righteousness and is of his own nature inclined to do evil, so that the flesh lusts always contrary to the spirit. So this idea of sin, we often think of sin as making bad choices, right? But within this idea of sin, if sin is indeed this genetic mutation in our spiritual DNA, then we cannot not sin. Um, on our own. We are helpless in the face of temptation. And we know that there is a different reality for us in Christ, but on our own as human beings, we are bound to trespass against God's commands. And even as my brother, my brother's also an ordained <coughs> minister, and one of the things he always says with people when they have no church background at all, when they have no way of even buying the Ten Commandments, and they're not there at all, they just say, well, who cares? about that. He tries to get to know them and find out what their ideals are, what their values are. Everyone has values, whatever they are. And so even if his, someone's value, their utmost value is kindness, for example, to other human beings, and you see a lot of that in scripture, but if that's their value is kindness, um, when you ask them, have you lived up to your value? If they're honest with themselves, um, because of human nature, they, it's impossible for them to have totally, perfectly, 100% all of the time lived up to their values. Um, and we hear this idea in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. A lot of people think, well, what about babies? Aren't babies exempt? They're so cute. They're so innocent. Um, but any parents, any parents in the room with young children right now, I know, yeah, I know. Um, they're born, babies are born as the center of their own universe. And as your parent, as their parents, one of your jobs is to convince them that you do not actually exist just for them. And I love reminding older parents of this, that actually it's okay to let go of some of those strings because they're going to have to live without you at some point. And so you can't be there all the time. Um, I think of parenting um, as being working yourself out of a job, right? So um, babies are the center of their own universe, but you have to convince them that night is night and day is day, and you cannot exist for the rest of their lives around the clock paying attention to their every physical need. Um, and that's not necessarily sinful in that selfishness, that self-centeredness. It's hard to see is it actively sinful because we don't have this verbal interaction with babies, right? And they're so cute. But um, if anyone's ever had a two-year-old, how many two-year-olds have their first word being no <laughs> or mine? I think of two-year-olds as these very adorable, very cute little tiny teenagers. And thank goodness they're so tiny because you can pick them up. And when they're disobeying and being rebellious, you can actually put them in their crib instead of saying, go to your room and knowing that they won't really stay in their room or they're going to continue to rebel. Um, those two-year-olds, you can put them in their crib um, and you can begin to deal with that 
sin right there and to condition them to help them to understand um, what obedience looks like. So um, this whole idea from Jean-Jacques Rousseau that um, the uncorrupted morals exist in the state of nature, if you remember, he's the philosopher who, who idealized the noble savage, thought that babies were born with a clean state. He believed that those who were without civilization, um, as we knew it in the Western world, were so wonderful and so pure and so sinless. He wrote, nothing is so gentle as man in his primitive state. Um, and um, that's actually he, that's actually not true when we look at the scriptural witness. And it's not true if we're honest with ourselves when we look at each other. Um, there's this wonderful, I'm not, my videos are not working, so I'm going to narrate. Not this video. This video I'll just have to tell you about, and maybe I can get the British accents just right. But um, in one of the videos that I was intending to show you, there's Cecil DeMille's um, Ten Commandments, which is a great film. If you want a good laugh, there's also, at this point, it feels campy. It was very serious when it was made, but so many years later, it does feel a little bit campy. Um, but there's this point in the book of Exodus where Moses comes down from the mountain after meeting with God, and he has the Ten Commandments, and they're written out on these stone tablets, right? And he comes down, and the, the people say, we will do all of these things. We will do all of these things. We promise we will do all of these things. And then what do they do the next minute? But they're breaking the very first one of the commandments. Um, so there's this confidence in their ability to um, keep the commandments. And then um, they turn around and they disobey them immediately. And they build the golden calf and worship the golden calf instead of worshiping Yahweh. Um, and so we see that this, um, we have this inability not to sin. And we see that so clearly in the life of Israel throughout scripture, the chosen people of God, that there they are um, continually going back to sinning. And so this... Um, when we look at them, of course, whenever we look at Israel in Scripture, we have to remember that um, we are no more righteous than they. We are no less sinful than they, even though we're talking about a specific ethnic people group there in the Old Testament. So all people sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And we borrow this passage in one of our weekly confessions that we say on Sundays. I'm going to hammer it home just a little bit more. If you might say, well, everyone sins except not me. I'm fine. So let's start outward. If you look at TV, if you watch TV, um, when you look at the people on TV, when you look at politicians, when you look at rock stars, can you admit to yourself there's sin in the world somewhere? They're sinning, right? And then I think when you bring it a little um, closer to home, um, ex with the exception of those who are engaged, don't listen because you, you don't want to know this. But what you'll find is when you're married, um, no one knows your sin like your spouse, right? No one knows um, the wrongs that you've done like your spouse. Um, and so even if you think that um, you might be above sin, you could see and say, well, my husband or my wife, they're not about sin. I know, I know their sin all too personally, much better than I'd like to know. If they would only just do the thing that they never do, but they should do, um, then we'd all be fine. Um, so if we're in denial about our sin and we say that's it's not that bad, we're really in denial. And so the video I would have shown you, it's from Monty Python in the Holy Grail, if you can recognize it. I'm going to narrate it for you just because it's really fun. Two knights are fighting. One is John Cleese, but you can't hear him, and he has this muffled helmet. And um, this other knight won't let him pass, and he's winning. Oh, no, that's it's not yet. Wait a second. I'm narrating the wrong one. 
It is John Cleese in there. <laughs> There's also French subtitles in case you read French. <laughs> <laughs> Come with us. You've proven your courage. And now he has to fight him because he says, I will never, or something like that. But he won't let them pass. So now they've got to duke it out. No, I really must pass. No, you will die. I'm the king of the English. I command you to move. No one, can, no one can command me to do anything. Oh, there's a little rebellion. All of this has great British accents. I'm not doing <laughs> British accents for you. <laughs> and oh. <laughs> and he goes, it's a flesh wound. <laughs> but no, but no. You lie. And then he calls him a coward and he keeps fighting. Right? This black knight keeps fighting. Oh, oh. <laughs> Victory is mine. And he's praying. Oh, oh. <laughs> he's continuing to call him a coward and saying, I'm waiting for you. And he's taunting him, basically. <laughs> it's just a flesh wound. And this is the, the phrase just a flesh wound. It'll get better. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm invincible. That I, I don't know if you saw that. It's just yeah. that's all. And he says the Black Knight is always victorious. Not so much. <laughs> <laughs> he goes a tie then, <laughs> and they go away. That phrase in my family has lived on because I saw this movie too many times when I was a child. Um, <laughs> who knows what my parents were thinking? But there are a lot of really good funny lines in there. And that line, it's just a flesh wound. I'll get, I'll get better. <laughs> a flesh wound. And I think of that with Sid, that we think, oh, it's not that bad. I'll get better. It's, it's going to be fine. No, Lord, don't look at my sin. I don't want you to see my sin. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden hid. It's hard for us to reveal it to God and to admit to God um, our sin. But when we do, when we admit, when we confess, when we fall on our knees, humble before God, aware that there are selfish things that we've said and done and thought, aware even that there are sinful things that we've probably done that we don't yet have the insight to see, part of God's mercy is that he does not reveal all of our sin to us all at once. Thank goodness. It would be too depressing, wouldn't it? But he's so gracious in just letting us see just a little bit, um, bite-sized chunks, we confess. And so when we confess, confession is not a program for self-improvement. Um, when we confess, we're not trying to find 10 steps to a better me or three easy ways to control my tongue. It's not a way of formulating um, New Year's resolutions. Confession is simply a form of surrender saying, I've done wrong, I've thought wrong, I've um, sinned against you, Lord God, 
but have mercy on me. And that's when we hear these words coming in from um, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, as, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are far worse than we imagine, but God is infinitely far more gracious than we can fathom. And so as we are on our knees, we're ready to receive the remedy for this genetic mutation that the great physician has prepared for our souls. And God's solution to our sin involves the giving of his own son, Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. While we are on our knees, we receive once again um, that mercy and that grace extended to us because of the great love with which God has loved us, because of the sending of his own son, Jesus, to take the penalty for sin upon himself, to take all of the sin and suffering upon himself in that moment, um, those long hours when he hung on the cross and died. And there in that moment, there is like this wonderful cosmic swap he takes our sin upon himself and he gives to us um, that righteousness that belongs to him. He who never sinned against God the Father, he who is perfect in all righteousness, um, gives to us his own righteousness. There's that wonderful swap like strangers on a train. His fate becomes our fate. Our fate became his fate. And so we are no longer children of wrath through Christ, but we're children adopted by grace. Just as Jesus is the Son of God by nature, we then by adoption through God's grace become sons and daughters of God. And so I love this language of this raising us up with him, even as we're on our knees. And every Sunday morning we're on our knees a lot, aren't we, as a whole congregation. By God's grace, we, we go to our knees, we humble ourselves, and God then delights to raise us up. And I think about that every time when we're worshiping that phrase that we're not just, it's not just this metaphorical raising up. And it's not just, oh, just eternal life at the last day and resurrection from the dead. It is that. But there is this lifting up of our souls and our spirits day by day throughout this life as we surrender to God, as we open up our hearts to him and say, it's more than just a flesh wound. It's serious. And I need your help. And I need your salvation. Um, God delights to extend to us that grace. Um, so there's grace at the very beginning when we first recognize this and we first say, I need you, Lord God. Um, and then there's also grace every day as we confess, as we get on our knees. Um, God gives us that grace of his forgiveness. Um, and then there's also this grace um, is not just manifest to us in forgiveness of sins as if that weren't enough. I mean, that's pretty amazing. And we talk about that. Every Sunday we'll talk about that. Every Sunday we'll talk about forgiveness of sins. Um, again, because of Jesus and because of Frank Limehouse, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel is printed right there on a plaque in the pulpit. And um, when uh, Dean Limehouse retired last year, um, we, all of us who are still on staff, we put our hands on that plaque and we took a picture of it 
so that where he was, retired in South Carolina, he could look at it and know that the gospel is continuing to go forth from this pulpit in Birmingham. Um, that this idea of this grace is not just forgiveness of sins that we receive at the beginning of our walk with God or every day along our walk with God. It includes also this motion of grace, that grace is extended to us in um, not just in this comfort and solace that comes from knowing that we're forgiven, but also in power. Um, because the Holy Spirit is given to all of us as we believe in Jesus Christ. And that Holy Spirit, um, that gift of the Holy Spirit is meant to give us grace beyond what we have in our own mental and physical and spiritual resources and emotional. I should put that in there. My emotional resources seem sorely lacking sometimes. But that the Holy Spirit gives us an extra measure beyond ourselves. And so when we pray that prayer of help forgive me we also pray another prayer um, multiple times throughout the day if you're me especially you say oh help me <laughs> i'm in over my head once again i don't know how this is going to get done whether it's planning an event or whether it's um, getting up in front of people and talking every time it's like oh lord help me because i need it and there's that extra measure of grace given as we call upon him in prayer as we believe in Jesus and trust that God will give us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do whatever it is that he sets in front of us to do today. And that, that includes especially good works. When we talk about those righteous deeds that we do as Christians, they're not righteous because we're good. They're righteous because God, by his Holy Spirit, is the one who empowers us to do them. And that's when you hear in the um, post-communion prayer, we didn't have communion this morning, but um, we pray um, about those things that God has prepared um, for us to walk in, those good things, the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. We are even passive in our Christian life when we are obeying the law. Um, that that grace of God somehow transforms our hearts and makes us want to obey the law, where formerly in our sinful flesh, we just said, touch the hand, God, or would turn away and say, or say, I'm going to do this, but because it's going to make me look good, or I'm going to do this because I should, and I want to earn brownie points with you, and if I do this, then you'll do that for me, right, God? That's how it works. Um, no, instead, on this side of the cross, um, God gives us his grace so that we obey the law miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is because grace transforms us. Receiving that grace, getting down on our knees and receiving the, that grace from God every week transforms us into his likeness, frees our hearts so that as Jeremiah says in chapter 31, that new covenant is written on our hearts, that the law is written on our hearts. We don't have to remind ourselves to do it because it happens naturally without us even thinking about it. And we hopefully don't know what we're doing uh, in the moment because then our sinful flesh will say, ooh, check it out, look what I just did. And then, oh, it's no longer a good work because I just got credit or gave myself credit somehow on this side of heaven. Um, so grace transforms us. Um, one last thing. We have grace at the beginning. We have grace every day as we live out this life as believers in Jesus. And then one of my last favorite parts about these verses from Ephesians 4 that I've been reading is that there is grace that God will extend to us throughout eternity. Um, Paul writes it, um, that God gives us grace and raises us up with Christ Jesus so that, that's the whole purpose, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As if forgiveness and resurrection and eternal life weren't enough, God is going to continue to lavish his grace and mercy and love upon us 
throughout eternity. As good as the good things are in life now, can you imagine even better things for all of eternity? Who knows those great things that he has in store for us in Christ Jesus. So we can look forward to in hope, knowing what he's done in the past, knowing his grace every day, and looking forward to that grace for the rest of all eternity. So I'm going to pray, and you can stay behind and ask me any questions if you want. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your death by which we have life. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you bring to us and for um, that grace that um, has bought us, that great grace that sustains us every day and that grace that will um, continue to be extended to us miraculously throughout all eternity. We love you and we praise you and we give you thanks and we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.